Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. We have to be really careful because it's possible that our lifestyles and our behavior at times could really, you know, in, in a sense, be blaspheming the Lord. And people look at us and think, what, you're, you're a Christian? I mean, how as a Christian are you behaving like that? How can you justify that kind of, a, of an attitude or that kind of perspective or, you know, a behavior of whatever sort? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Isaiah chapters 52 through 53. Now, here's Pastor Brian. All right. So, Isaiah 52 is where we are picking up, and we're going to do Isaiah 52 and 53. And some of you will know this, or others, maybe this is the first time you would hear this, but Isaiah 53 is one of the most significant chapters in all the Bible. It's one of the key chapters in all of the Bible. It is the chapter that's commonly referred to under the heading of the suffering servant. Now, as we've been going through Isaiah, we have met this servant of the Lord. Behold my servant in whom my soul delights, uh, chapter 42, verse 1 says. And all the way from chapter 42, right on through here to 53, we've had four different little vignettes regarding the servant of the Lord. And this this here in 52 and 53 is the climactic one. Now, obviously we've got to get to chapter 52 before we get to 53, but but the the story of the suffering servant begins at the end of the 52nd chapter. So we're going to go really quickly through the first part of chapter 52 and then when we get to verse 13 of chapter 52, that's when we really enter into this picture of the suffering servant. But but let me just tell a quick story um, to help us understand just how powerful this passage is. Um, well, first of all, the, the Isaiah 53 passage, it is the passage that, that um, well, it is, it is quoted and alluded to over and over in the New Testament. And it's really the basis for what we call, um, it's a theological term, but it's called penal substitutionary atonement. And it's rooted in Isaiah 53. And what that means, penal means there's a penalty that was incurred. And substitution refers to somebody other than the guilty person paying um, the penalty. And then atonement, of course, is the, the washing and the cleansing and the, and the restoring of, of the relationship. So Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the innocent person being uh, put forth as a substitute to pay the penalty for the guilty. And that, of course, would be us. So, um, but, but this passage is so profound. And if you just read it, if, if I just tore uh, Isaiah 53 out of my Bible and handed it to you, and if you had any knowledge of, of Jesus and dying on the cross and all of that, um, I would almost guarantee that if you read it, 
you would think that you were reading a page from the New Testament. Some years ago, quite a few years ago now, I was on a trip to Israel. And, you know, we go on tours to Israel and we have uh, tour guides and the tour guides are uh, Jewish and they're very uh, well educated um, in, you know, the history of the land and the biblical stories and 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 those kinds of things. And And the majority of them are, um, a few of them are religious Jews. Most of them are non-religious Jews and 99% of them are not at all believers in Jesus. But they've been, of course, they live in the land. They've been to all the sites. They've heard the stories. They tell the stories. So sometimes you'd be tempted to think like, well, they must surely believe in Jesus. Look at the way they're talking about him. But for the most part, they don't. Uh, some do. I know some some Jewish guides who are actually believers in Jesus, the Messiah. But anyway, so... I'm there in Israel and we're on this tour and our tour guide, great guy, you know, we have a good relationship, having a fun conversation. And I said to him at one point, I said, hey, I want to read you something and let just listen and then let me know what you think. So I read him a portion from this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And, and then I just said to him, I said, so where do you think I was reading from? And he paused for a moment. He sort of chuckled and he said, well, of course you were reading from the gospels. And I said, oh, which gospel? He said, oh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, could have been any of them. But, you know, obviously you were reading from the gospels. I said, interesting. I said, as a matter of fact, I was reading from your prophet Isaiah. And he was completely stunned. He said, no, 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 you weren't. I said, I showed him my Bible. I said, well, here it is right here. And he was flabbergasted. He couldn't believe because it was obvious to him as I was reading it, it was obvious that I was describing Jesus. But he couldn't believe when I told him it was a, a passage from the Jewish scriptures. So anyway, that's how, that's how powerful and how clear a presentation of the suffering of Christ uh, comes out in Isaiah 53. So we'll, we'll uh, talk about a few more of those things, but let's jump into chapter 52 and again, let me just give a quick reminder that in these chapters, God is, he's sometimes he's bringing Israel's sin to their attention and, and reminding them of, of why they're in captivity. And then sometimes he's talking about the great mercy of God that's forgiven their sin. And he's promising to ultimately deliver them from captivity in Babylon, because this is written to those who are in Babylon. And, but then also, as we pointed out, sometimes he's projecting all the way out to even a future date from today. He's projecting out into the, the future when the Lord comes and sets up his kingdom. And then the nation is fully restored to God permanently, never to depart again and, and to live forever in that new covenant. So at, toward the end of the 52nd chapter, that's what we're going to see. So it starts, it says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. So the uncircumcised would be a, a reference to those people who were outside of the covenant. Of course, circumcision was a physical act that was performed, that was a sign of the covenant. But circumcision also, according to Jeremiah the prophet, circumcision had an application to the heart as well. 
So sometimes when the Lord's speaking of the uncircumcised, he's speaking of those whose hearts are hardened and, and resistant to him. So the uncircumcised and the unclean, they no longer have a place in Jerusalem. Shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. So that was the story of Jerusalem. They had sold themselves for nothing. They'd just given their inheritance away. They, they basically squandered everything through their idolatry and their sin. So they had sold themselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. And of course, money in this case could never redeem them. And, and it reminds me of something we're told in the New Testament where Peter is writing and he says, he says, for you were redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless way of life, which you inherited from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so when the prophet here says that you shall be redeemed without money, we know what the redemptive cost would be. It would be the precious blood of Christ. And so for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here says the Lord that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. So they were slaves in Egypt and then they were oppressed by the Assyrians. The Assyrians took them into captivity. And now what have I have, have here? He's referring now to the current situation with Judah, which is the Southern kingdom and their captivity in Babylon. And he says, my name is blasphemed continually every day. And, you know, Paul, it's interesting, this chapter here, uh, this 52nd chapter, the apostle Paul quotes extensively from the 52nd chapter in his writings. And in, in Romans chapter two, he actually quotes this and he, he's, he's addressing the Jewish people in his audience. And he, he says to them, because of their violations of God's law, God's name is continually blasphemed among the Gentiles. And Paul, so Paul's just drawing from this statement here. So God's name was blasphemed because Israel was God's people. And they were supposed to be a picture of what a people are like who are the Lord's people and how they live differently, and how they live righteously, and how there's justice, and there's mercy. And, and then as a result of that, there's a blessing on them. But they've been carried off into captivity because of their idolatry and so forth. And so the prophet says, this is actually a cause for blasphemy. So people look on and say, what? So those are the people of God? What a joke. What kind of God is their God? That's the idea that's happening there. And, and you know, we have to be really careful because it's possible that our lifestyles and our behavior at times could really, you know, in, in a sense, be 
be blaspheming the Lord. And people look at us and think, what, you're, you're a Christian? I mean, how, how as a Christian are you behaving like that? How, how can you justify that, that kind of, a, of an attitude or that, that kind of um, perspective or you know, a behavior of whatever sort? So, so we, we have to make sure we're not doing that same kind of a thing that they were doing because it's possible that we could. So he goes on, he says, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks, behold it is I, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, anyone familiar with your New Testament? Here's another quote, and you can find this in Romans chapter 10. Paul is talking about how are they going to, you know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is going to be saved, but how are they going to call upon the one they haven't heard of, and how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches, and how are they going to preach unless they are sent And then Paul goes right into this passage, as it is written, how lovely are the feet of those who bring good news. And so he's just taking it from Isaiah here. But notice here, Paul is applying it to himself and the gospel preachers. But notice here how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. I think the him here is more specific. I think it's, again, it's a reference to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah who would come and bring good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good tidings, glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. But just think about that imagery for a second. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Wow. You know, if you think about that, you know, somebody bringing good news, they are... That's such a welcome thing, isn't it? You know, maybe maybe you're just waiting for news and you're 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 weighed down because there's a possibility that the news isn't gonna be good and you're waiting and you're waiting and and you know, here comes that messenger, here comes that person to deliver the message and and then as they come and they deliver it and it's actually good news. It's like you wanna, you know, fall down and kiss their feet. How how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And think about it, the gospel is the greatest news. And you know, for those who truly receive the gospel, whether it's somebody today who is somebody that you're acquainted with, somebody that you've known, somebody that you've been privileged to share the gospel with and see and come to Christ, I know that they would look at your feet and say, oh, how beautiful. <laughs> um, they, there, there would just be this, this tremendous gratitude. And that's the case. When the gospel goes and in, into a place and people get saved and, and they realize this is the greatest news ever. And, and they're so thankful. We've been teaching through Philippians on Sunday and we've been talking about how the Philippians, um, they partnered with the, the apostle Paul because they saw his feet as beautiful because he was the one who brought them the gospel that changed their lives, that gave them hope, that delivered them from despair, that set them free from the ravages of sin. Because Paul had done that, and they said, man, we want you to be able to take the same message to other people so what we've experienced can become their experience as well. So they undoubtedly would have seen Paul's feet as beautiful feet. And so it is with, with, with those who, who bring the gospel. I'm just thinking in my mind about stories, even like 
the Kujas, like we just saw there, or others who go to the mission field, who go to places where the gospel has not been, uh, maybe ever before, or has not been for a long time, and they come with the greatest news ever. And then forever, the people are indebted to them. Forever, the people thank them. You know, a man by the name of Mackay, he went to be with the Lord. Mackay was part of the Alka Indian tribe or the Ashura. They were properly called the Ashura, but they were nicknamed the Alka because they were so vicious. But maybe you remember the story. Some of you have never heard the story. It's detailed in the book called The Gates of Splendor. And it's a book about Jim Elliott and four of his friends who went down with their families to Ecuador And um, in the process of trying to bring the gospel to the Alka Indians, they were murdered by them. And one of the young warriors that, that was responsible for killing them and for killing Jim specifically, his name was Mackay. And Mackay, through the witness of the wives who came back after a brief period and brought the gospel back to those people, he came to faith. And he lived for many, many years. He actually came here to this church at one point, and I got to meet him and talk with him and, and just see that man whose life had been so transformed. But for him, those men that brought him the gospel, um, they, after you know, murdering them, um, but then putting their faith in Christ, they were forever thankful for the, um, that, that good news that was brought to them. And Mackay went on to serve the Lord the remainder of his life. So I need to hurry up here because we got to get to Isaiah 53. So your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices, they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye. When the Lord brings back Zion, break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Just note that really quickly. We're gonna come back to that in just a second. But then, so remember they're in Babylon, but this is the call now. This whole chapter is announcing their deliverance from the captivity in Babylon and even further down the road from the future captivity in the new Babylon that will be Uh, ruled by the the Antichrist. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Again, Paul quotes this, part of it anyway, he quotes in 2 Corinthians. So he says, for you shall go, uh, you shall not go out with haste, nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. So, the prophets promising them that the day of their salvation, the day of their deliverance from Babylon is coming. But but go back to verse 10 for a moment. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and in the and, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, verse 13, behold my servant. So all of the nations, all the ends of the earth, seeing the salvation of our God. Now the salvation is um, described as the person who brings salvation, the Savior. And what does it say? Behold my servant. 
So here, once again, the servant of the Lord, and he shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, extolled, and be very high. He shall be exalted and extolled. Ultimately, he shall be lifted up very high. This is a reference to the crucifixion. How do we know that? Because Jesus refers to it in John's gospel. He says, if the son of man is lifted up, and he's alluding back to this very passage right here. And so he will be uh, extolled. He will be lifted up. He will be very high. And then just as many were were astonished at you, so uh, the prophet speaking to the nation, just as uh, people were astonished at the nation because of their um, the punishment and the judgment that came upon them because of their revolt against God and so forth. But then it says, so his visage, speaking of the servant of the Lord, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And so what this is saying is that people are going to marvel at the fact that through his suffering, this servant is going to be so abused that he would not resemble a human being. When Jesus was taken and abused by the high priest and his men and by the Roman soldiers and by Herod and his troops, they beat him beyond recognition. Remember, we read in the previous chapter, chapter 50, remember we read where the Lord speaking again to the prophetic voice says, I did not turn my back from those who struck me or from the smiters. And I did not turn my face from those who plucked out the beard. I did not turn my face from the shame and the spitting. So we know from the New Testament accounts, although it doesn't tell us that his beard was plucked out there, we know from Isaiah that it was. But we do know that they took and they would put a leather sack over the head of Jesus and they would beat him with reeds. And you can only imagine how this would disfigure his face. And that's what the prophecy is referring to. And so verse 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Another translation is so shall he startle many nations. And it, and it would be startling in a sense. But um, most agree that sprinkle is the better idea because you see this sprinkling. Sprinkling is a reference to atonement. It's the sprinkling of the blood. You go all the way back to the Mosaic system. And what were the priests to do? They were to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, and that would bring atonement. And so it's through this this marring, it's through this beating, it's through this suffering that he will ultimately sprinkle, make atonement for, wash and cleanse many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. 
Words can change their meaning over time, or they can carry a different meaning depending on the context in which they are used. So what is the meaning today of words in the Bible like faith, grace, hope, or peace? Do these words still have the same meaning today? Do you really understand what they mean in the Bible? These words not only have a rich history of meaning that is found within the whole Bible, but they also have a powerful significance for our lives today. You'll learn what it means to know God, to be changed by His favor, and how to lean into a redeemed future with an expectation of wholeness, goodness, and harmony. This book will bring theology into your life in a very practical way, as Nietzsche helps you to reflect on how each of the 15 words might look like in everyday life. If you're interested in what the New Testament has to say about God, God's people, or God's world, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.